First Kings chapter two, we'll start in chapter two, but I'm going to just quickly breeze over chapter three. So if you went to chapter three, verse five of first Kings, and I'm going to encourage you to do this. You would see this moment where Solomon has been king for a short period of time and God shows up in a dream and you've maybe heard of this, but God asks Solomon, what do you want? Anything you want, anything you desire, if you'll ask me, I'll do that for you. And Solomon responds to this moment with God, which is, I think, the moment that a lot of us would, would say that would be an awesome moment to have, right? God himself showing up and saying, hey, what do you want? Just whatever it is. I got you. Just, just go ahead and ask. I'll do that for you. Anybody in here got just a dream where you'd be like, it'd be awesome if God just like, just there you go. You can have it. Just maybe it's a financial dream. Maybe it's a family dream. Maybe it's a future spouse dream. Uh, maybe it's a, you know, a ministry dream. But to know that God has a place where he can trust you like that, where he can ask you, what do you want? And he's so confident in who you are when he, before he even asks the question that he knows you're going to say the right thing. Imagine that. Imagine not just God saying that, but imagine being the kind of person that he can trust saying that too. Because they're two different things. Am I right? All of us, I think, would say, yeah, if God wants to give me anything I want, sure, I'll take that. But do I want to be the kind of person when he asks me that he can trust what I have to say when I give him the response? And so Solomon asked for wisdom, just wisdom, wisdom and how to lead people. And God says, so you're not going to ask for wealth. You're not going to ask for fame. You're not going to ask for power. That's what, that's what everybody else really asks for. And God says, because you ask for wisdom, all of these other things, I'll give them to you. So there was a trust test that Solomon passed. And so I want to go to chapter two because we begin to see some of the tests that Solomon passed in chapter two before he got the chapter three dream. And so that's really where we're going to go. We want to talk about the chapter three dream briefly, but we're going to spend a little bit more time on becoming the type of person that God can trust with that kind of a dream. Amen. You all want great things for your family, great things for your life. Then there are some things that he's going to maybe make sure we're ready for those dreams when he gives them to us. And he does that through helping us pass some tests. So let's look at it. Verse two of chapter two. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Earth. This is David speaking. He's on his deathbed and he's talking to his son, Solomon. He's got days left and he says this to his son. I, I think this is so interesting to me because I'm just imagining I'm about to die. I'm talking to my children and I'm probably saying really warm, fuzzy things like, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You can do great in life. Don't worry about me. Don't think about me. Go. Like, that's what I'm thinking, right? You know, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too, dad. I'm going to miss you. Don't go. Like, that's what I'm thinking. David does none of this with Solomon. He says to him, be strong and act like a man. This is not going to end up on a glittery Hallmark card. Am I right? <laughs> it's not warm and fuzzy. David looks at his son. The last thing he says to him is, I want you to be strong and act like a man, which teaches us you can be something and not act like it right? You can be married, not act married. Quiet church. You want to say amen to that one if you're married. <laughs> if you're married, you want to say amen. Amen. You can be an adult, not act like one. 
This is where you wouldn't say amen if you're sitting with your spouse. You can be a Christian and not act like one. You can be a pastor and not like, act like one. And here, David teaches Solomon, I need you to be strong and act like a man or woman. You can put woe in front of man. That's what God did, right? He saw Eve. He's like, whoa, man. So you can do that if you would like. <laughs> See? See that? Your pastor told me to not tell jokes because I don't tell jokes very well. But you laughing is me just poking him, right? He's actually right. I'm, a ter I'm terrible. But if you'd give more, he could bring in somebody funnier. Okay. Let's look at it. All right. So verse 7, David is giving his, his son instructions on some decisions he's going to have to make. And he talks about Barzillai in verse seven. We can go down to verse 23. He talks about Abathar, or sorry, Adonijah in verse 26. He talks about Abathar. I'm going to encourage you to read this later, but just in consideration for your time, I'm just going to touch on some of these. Verse 28, he talks about Joab. Verse 36, he talks about Shimei. And these were all people that represent situations, issues that Solomon was going to have to deal with with before he gets to the chapter three dream. So let's look at each of these real quick. We'll go through them as quickly as we can. First of all, he says concerning Barzillai, I need you to let Barzillai live. And Barzillai really represents generosity. If you go into the background of Barzillai, when Absalom was trying to take David out and David is on the run, he takes his family, he takes some of his mighty men and he goes into the wilderness where he's hiding to survive. While in the wilderness, a man from Gilead by the name of Barzillai comes along, who's very wealthy, and he uses his wealth to take care of the king and his family and his mighty men while he's on the run. Had Barzillai not showed up, had Barzillai not leveraged the way God blessed him to help the king, had he not done that, David would have not survived. So now Absalom has died. David is going back to Jerusalem. As he's heading back to Jerusalem, he tells Barzillai, listen, I want to bless you. I want to take care of you for all that you've done for me. Barzillai refuses the blessing. Now, fast forward, Barzillai is dead and gone. He's been gone for years. David is on his deathbed and he's talking to his son. And he says to his son, I want you to not only remember Barzillai, I don't want you to only... I don't want you to always remember. Not only do I want you to remember that the reason we even have a table is because of him. I want you to make sure that at the king's table, you provide a seat for the sons of Barzillai. So David teaches his son, if you're going to pass the trust test, you have to let generosity live in your life. You have to not only let it live, but you have to make sure that generosity has a seat at the table in your life. Because that's where we're at today. We're all at the king's table. We're all here, right? The king's table has been prepared. It's a beautiful table. It's got forgiveness. It's got, you know, the, the freedom that Jesus died for us to have. It's got healing. It's got all these things that we have sitting here at the table that God has given us. We've got new beginnings. We've got new starts. We've got all this stuff that God, brand new mercy every day, total access to his presence in our time of need. We can boldly go and ask him. We've got all this at our table. But he said, make sure that when you're at the king's table, you have a seat for the sons of Barzillai at the table. 
And the truth is, we're all the sons of Barzillai. Every person has a seat at the king's table today. And you want to know why you have a seat at the king's table? Because of someone else's generosity. You did not earn that seat. Someone else sacrificed and gave to make sure that you would have a seat at the king's table. Uh, we want to take this out of the equation, but David teaches Solomon, don't take the generosity of others and how that plays into the advancement of the king and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Don't neglect to make sure that you tell people generosity has a seat at the table. I can personally remember when I was 16 years old, I didn't grow up in church. My mom died of a drug overdose. My dad's an atheist to this day, uh, believing that that's going to change in Jesus' name. Love you if you ever watch this, Dad. And, and the, the, the point is simply this, that there's a church that reached out to me, 70-member church, small little church, was never bigger than that, but somehow they had a vision to reach young people. They didn't have a bunch of resources. The little youth room that we had was the size of most of our closets, and, and I think about that church, they found a way to pay a youth pastor a minimal, measly salary. But somehow that youth pastor found a way to a lunchroom where I was sitting there with friends. That guy reached out to me. I came to church because that church cared for young people. I got saved. I gave my life to Christ. They taught me how to read the scriptures. They taught me how to pray. They taught me how to, to identify the assignment on my life, the purpose that God had on my life. I didn't know John three sixteen. I didn't know David. and God. I didn't know any of those things, but a church cared enough to reach out to me. And Paul said to the church of Corinth that there are people when they get to heaven, they'll remember you and they'll thank God for you. Now, I don't know the name of the people in that little church that gave and sacrificed for some 16 year old kid to hear the gospel. But I do know that those people existed. And on a regular basis in my prayers, I thank God for them because now I'm about to be a granddaddy in two weeks. I've got two daughters who have been raised in the things of God. They've been raised in the house of God. I've been married for 25 years. I, I'm about to have, again, be a, a grandfather. I pastor a, a, a wonderful, beautiful, group of people called Seven Hills. And all of that came because somewhere back in the day, someone made sure that I would have a seat at the king's table. And what, whatever the chapter three dream looks like, it should include making sure generosity has a seat at the table in your life. To make sure that you and I are never in our mind forgetting that someone else paid the price for us to have a seat. And now my job is to pay a price so the next generation can have a seat, whether that's the next generation of young people, whether that's the next generation of people that are far from God. My job is to make sure that generosity always has a seat at the table. Number two, he says you're going to have to let Adonijah die. In verse 23 of that chapter, maybe it's 25. And I love this because to me it speaks of the concept of how ego can rob you and I of the dream in our life. And so you have to let ego die. Adonijah represents not just ego, but just this idea that you can self-appoint yourself in life. That you can self-anoint yourself. That, that what happened in chapter 1 of 1 Kings is Adonijah said this about himself. He said, I will be king. David never promised him the throne. Da David never appointed him as king. The prophets didn't appoint him as king. He appointed himself. He said, I will be king. And the Bible says that the reason he acted that way 
is because his father never rebuked him or corrected him asking or saying to him, why are you behaving like this? So Adonijah thought the way you get to the top in life is it's self-promotion. It's you just promote yourself. You step on who you need to step on to get where you want to go. That's how you get to the top. It doesn't matter who you step on. I, I heard it the opposite, though. If you step on the hands of those who are holding the ladder on your way up, then they might just let go when you get to the top. So you don't step on people. So, so in the kingdom, it's not I will be king. In the body of Christ, it's I will be servant. It's not I self-promote my way and climb to the top. No, I serve as much as I can. It doesn't matter what I do. I serve my way. And that's how I pass the trust test. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 20. I love this, this verse because the sons of Zebedee, their mom wanted them to be at the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus when he came to his kingdom. Which first represents fame. It represents power. It represents influence. This is what they desired. And Jesus responds to the sons of Zebedee's mom by saying, you don't know what you're asking for. These places, this is exactly what he says. These places are prepared for whom the father has prepared. In other words, Jesus is always preparing two things at all times. He's preparing places and he's preparing people. Places are important because God created places before he created people. Over 1,100 times, he says, if you'll go here, when you get there, I'll do this. So places matter to God. So the place that God is preparing for you and I is usually out in the future. It's in the distance. We're not there yet. It's a goal. It's a dream. It's a place we're working towards, we're, we're believing for, we're preparing for. But the Bible teaches that God goes out in front of us and he prepares places. He makes situations ready for us. He, he gets the people moved out and moved around and everything. He's out there and then he gets behind us and he whispers in our ear, this is the way to go walk in it. But every now and then we'll start moving off task a little bit. And, and so God says, not only am I preparing the place, but I'm preparing the person for the place. And he says, the greatest in the kingdom are those who are servants. So God says, not only do you and I need to be thinking about the place God's calling us to go, but we also need to realize that it's through my serving that God prepares the man for the place or the woman for the place or the church for the place that he's calling us. He prepares us when we're willing to say, I'm going to serve more. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my, and we just make the decision. Ego is not going to be the driving force in my life. There are three reasons every leader fails. Ego Ego, ego, ego. And ego has no place in what we're called to do. We have to let pride die, let ego die. We have to push that stuff down and we have to let the servant heart in us, which is really the heart of God, surface. The Bible says he had no one in his life to correct him. No one in his life to rebuke him. Pride refuses to be corrected. Ego refuses to be teachable. If we're going to get to the chapter three dream, every person in this room needs to have someone in your life that can correct you. I love to say it like this, that can know you, K-N-O-W, and can know you, can N-O you. You need someone in your life. And, and if someone says something to you and in saying it, it's a hard thing. It's an uncomfortable thing. And then they, they in no way benefit from telling it to you. Can I tell you, there's a strong probability there's a lot of truth in what they're saying. Can you be corrected? 
Who's instructing you? Who are you submitted to? Who do you look to? Super important if you're going to let ego die, that you're willing to be corrected along the way. Number three, he goes on to say that you're going to have to let Abathar, the priest, live, which to me speaks of boundaries. And I'll tell you why. It's such an interesting story. Abathar represents a godly man. He was a spiritual advisor to David. For the most part, Abathar was always found close to the Ark of the Covenant. Wherever you saw the Ark of the Covenant going, Abathar was close by. He feared God. He loved God. He had a heart for God. But he also had weaknesses. And he ends up being a fallen preacher. He ends up allowing the wrong people into his circle of influence. And as a chief priest or chief spiritual advisor to David, he loses his position of influence in the kingdom. And so now Solomon has to figure out how to deal with Abathar, this fallen preacher. And so David tells his son, you're going to have to let him live. But he specifically gives him instructions. He says, I want you to get a piece of property and I want you to create these no trespassing zones on the property. And I want you to tell Abathar he can live, but he cannot leave the boundaries of the place that I've assigned him to. Because of his weaknesses, he's got to have boundaries. God did not remove the weakness. God said, I want you to create boundaries to assist you in the weakness. I don't know about you, but I've spent my life believing that someday God will help me with my weaknesses. Has anybody in here noticed that though he can help me, a lot of times I'm still the one having to make sure the boundaries are in place because no matter how long I serve God, no matter how strong I think I am, no matter how great I think I am, it doesn't take very long to let your boundaries slip before you start finding your, those weaknesses can get a, a grip on you again. Do I got any people that be honest about that today? So God says the way you deal with weaknesses, the way you deal with Abathar, you don't expect it to die. You just got to create some boundaries. God's not going to get rid of temptation so you and I can stay saved or stay loving God. God's not going to get rid of all the pretty girls so you can stay holy. God's not going to get rid of all the pretty boys or good looking boys or whatever you want to call them so you can stay saved. That's not how it works. Not that you can lose your salvation. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all are here. That there are weaknesses in our life, but God gives us boundaries and how to manage them. A boundary is just a no trespassing zone. As I make the decision ahead of time, there are certain things I do, certain things I don't do. Places I go, places I don't go. And if I'm going to live the chapter three dream, I've got to make a decision to create some boundaries in my life that will protect me along the way so I do not lose my integrity on the way. Number four, he said, you're going to have to let Joab die. Let Joab die. Really, this speaks of inconsistency because there's not a more powerful warrior than Joab. But he was emotionally out of control, filled with rage, filled with envy, constantly comparing himself, vengeful, always looking to get revenge, filled with rage. And so what you have with Joab is one moment he's very faithful to David. He's very committed to David. And then the next moment something happens and his emotions get the best of him and he's acting out of character because he doesn't know you're going to have to let inconsistency die in your life. You cannot fluctuate and have really high highs and really low lows and get to the chapter three dream. You have to find a way to balance your life out. And the way you balance your life out is you make a decision. How can I be consistent where my fluctuations are not 
way up here and way down here. How do I find a way to balance out my emotions? And the best way to balance out your emotions is realize that your emotions are a terrible leader. Your feelings are the worst thing to allow to lead your life. You wake up in the morning, you know, you're supposed to maybe go pray or read your Bible. Um, my, my, I don't ever feel like doing that. I know I'm supposed to tell you I feel like I can wake up and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm so excited to be up. I can't wait to go read and pray. But when I wake up, I want to push snooze. That's what I feel like. When I wake up early in the morning, I'm finding every reason to try to push back the clock and how I can maybe get this in or why it doesn't really matter if I do it today. And my feelings, if I let them lead me at the beginning of my day, then my whole day is off. My whole day fluctuates. But if I make the decision to know, I'm not going to feel like it no more. Feelings are like a baseball. If I, throw, if I throw you a baseball, you don't have to catch it, right? You can just choose, no, I'm good. I'm not going to catch it. That's what feelings are like. When feelings come at you, you don't have to catch them. You can make a decision. That feeling is not going to lead my life. So you wake up, you go read, you go pray, you go to the gym, you start finding out things that you don't feel like doing once discipline is what leads you to do them. Then you start finding out that your feelings are really good at serving you, but they're terrible at leading you. I don't consult my feelings when I wake up in the morning. I don't consult my feelings when it comes to showing up at church. I don't, I don't consult my feelings when it comes to worship. I don't consult my feelings when it comes to any spiritual discipline because it's called spiritual discipline for a reason. My feelings are going to fight the discipline. But if I can get to myself to the place where I'm like, okay, discipline leads the way. It's going to lessen the fluctuations in our life. And so Joab, the Bible says, he hears that it's the end for him. He's going down. Inconsistency is going to die. An assassin is on its way. And Joab, of all places, he runs into a church. He comes to an altar and he grabs a hold of it. The assassin walks in and Joab and him make eye contact. They had fought many battles together. And Joab tells him, I'm not leaving here. If you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me right here at the altar. I'm not walking out of God's house. I'm not leaving God's presence. If you're going to kill me, you kill me right here at the altar. And right there at that altar, Joab died. And I think that every Christian needs to, on a regular basis, come to an altar and say, God, the rage has been driving my life. The unforgiveness has been driving my life. The, 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 the bitterness has just been, it's got a hold of me. And, and I know that if I let these emotions control me, the apathy, if I let them control me, I'm going to fluctuate and I'm never going to get to the chapter three dream. But if you can help the inconsistencies, if you can help me take those emotions, those negative emotions to an altar and die there. Sometimes you just got to say, I'm letting that thing die. Right. You're not getting back up. That emotion is not going to come back up and, and cause me to miss the chapter three dream that God has for me. And then number, where are we at? Number five, five minutes. We're out. You guys ready? You good? Consistency, choosing your pain, the pain of consistency or the pain of regret. It's always our choice. Number five, he says, let Shimei live. If you study Shimei, the verses 36 and 37 reference him there. But this is a beautiful example of forgiveness and how forgiveness needs to be alive and nurtured in our lives. So Shimei would have been known 
as an en enemy of David on two different occasions, Shimei publicly attacks David in such a ruthless way that his men want to kill him. And David has the power, the authority, and the means to deal with him. But two separate times publicly, David forgives Shimei. Now Solomon, his son's going to become king, and David knows that he's going to have to deal with Shimei. And so he tells him, I want you to let Shimei live. I want you to let him live. This would mean that three different times David or his son Solomon have forgiven Shimei of attacking and criticizing and trying to destroy David and his family. So the Bible says that when Solomon forgives him, this is such an interesting to me just idea. Push, pushes him to this community, to this city, and he has to live in this city, has to stay in this city. If he stays in this city, he can live, prosper, have a great life. But if he leaves this city, which is helpful to me to understand forgiveness because it doesn't mean that Shimei was, had a seat at his table. That's not what his dad, his dad didn't say, Shimei should have a seat at your table. He didn't infer that they should be incredibly close. He inferred that he should live. So forgiveness under the old covenant, at the highest level, if you forgave somebody of the same offense three times, that was the highest level of forgiveness under the old covenant. We would know under the new covenant that Jesus changes the mathematics, right? He says you have to forgive 70 times seven or 490 times a day, by the way. That's the New Testament level of forgiveness, and then God adds to that math, those mathematics by saying, if you want to know exactly how this plays out in your life, when you've got your ledger out and you're listing the sins of the person that you have this issue with, and in your mind, you just hope that the relationship dies, that God delivers you from the presence of that person, and you've got the ledger, the, all their sins. You've got your scrapbook of all the offenses out, and you're going through the scrapbook. See, right here they did this, right here they did this. you got all that. God says, pause that. Now go over here and I want you to start listing your sins. I want you to pull out the scrapbook of all your mistakes and all your failures. And while you're adding them up, before you ask me to forgive you, I need you to go over here and I need you to apply that same level of forgiveness to them. And once you apply the same level of forgiveness to them, then you can come back and ask me to forgive you. That's the mathematics of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not keeping score. It's losing count. Forgiveness is just me simply saying that the worst in someone else can bring out the best in me. But I have to let forgiveness live. I have to let forgiveness be alive and well in my life. And the Bible says, once he passed the trust test, then he got to the chapter three dream. And when he got to the chapter three dream, God said, whatever you want, I can give it to you, whatever, whatever it is. But he doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for power. Why? Why? I am just going to throw this out there. Could it be that when he sat down at the table with the sons of Barzillai and he looked at the fact that the only reason he had a table was because of the generosity of Barzillai. He learned a lesson there that it's not about just what I get, 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 get. How much can I get? How much can I get? But 
he broke the curse of greed on his life when he gave generosity a seat at the table? And could it be that when the time came for him to answer the dream, where most of the time people would have said, well, if I get all the money and I get all the stuff, then I can fix some problems. He knew better. He knew, God, I don't want that. I want generosity in my life in order to be a generous person. It's not about how much I can gain, but it's about having the wisdom to know how I make sure that it's given away. It could have been that, that he would have been an arrogant leader. He would have been a, a leader obsessed with ego and pride. It could have been, but he had to attend the funeral of his half-brother Adonijah and he realized pride puts you in the grave. Pride kills dreams. It kills families. It kills futures. It, it, it could have been that, that he would have been the type of guy that didn't have boundaries or didn't really would do whatever he wanted to do, but he watched. This incredible priest this great spiritual advisor, this incredible man of God that had always been close to the ark, he watched him because of a lack of boundaries throw away the dream. Could have been that he looked at the level of forgiveness that he had to show Shimei, but we know that the chapter three dream came and he was ready for it. And when God said, what do you want? He said, man, I just want what you want. I want your heart for people. I want your heart for my life. I want your heart for where I'm going. I, I, don't, I don't care exactly what the place looks like. I just want to be the type of person that I'm supposed to be when I get to the dream. Amen. I don't know what the dream that God has for you is. But I want you to know that God has a chapter three dream for you. But maybe where we're at today is saying God. Help me be the type of man or woman, the type of husband or wife or future husband or wife. Or let me be the young person that you can trust with that dream. Amen. Right. Close every head bowed. I just want to quickly pray for you. And my prayer is going to be super simple. I ask God to anoint your dream, whatever that is. If you don't have a dream, I'm going to ask according to Acts chapter two, which is another great pass the test chapter in your Bible. You get to chapter three. They're laying hands on the sick lame or leaping in the house of God. The miracles happen in chapter three, but the waiting and the patience and the tearing for the Holy Spirit to be poured out happened in chapter two. But the promise was in chapter two came from the prophet Joel that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and that we would have dreams and vision. Those, those are some of the things that you and I could count on when the Holy Spirit is poured out on our life in a new measure. When that happens, It'll be confirmed in your heart because you'll begin to dream. You'll begin to have a sense of purpose guiding your life. So, Father, in Jesus name, I pray you anoint every dream in this room. You know the battles, you know the struggles, you know what they're up against, you know the attacks of the enemy. But Father, today we pray for a special anointing to come upon the dreams of your people. Those who have a career dream, a business dream, a financial dream, a family dream. Those who have a dream to be free from the emotional fluctuations of life and the fear and the anxiety and the depression. Father, I thank you that you can give us the grace to, to find a way to let discipline lead the way. Anoint dreams today. Pour out your spirit on all flesh, on every person that's here. And Father, we thank you that we can look to you as the giver of dreams. In Jesus' name.
Every eye is closed, every head is bowed. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Marcus, I'm not right with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the Lord of your life. You're far from God this morning. But you sense that God is speaking to you. You sense just a softening in your heart. You sense today that, that God has something more for you than what you've currently been living. And you would like me to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to humiliate you. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to lift your hand. And you lifting your hand is just you saying, yes, would you include me in this prayer? And inside this prayer, we're just going to simply walk you through what the Bible calls a prayer of profession or, or confession or both, really. And it's just simply the way the Bible says, if you believe that Jesus Christ is God's only son, that he raised him from the dead, that you shall be saved. And we're going to just walk you through that. The Bible says it like this. That he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. You just open up and he comes in. It's a simple thing but we're gonna lead you in that. So you'd say, Marcus, I've not put my trust in Christ. I'm not right with Jesus today. You need forgiveness. You need a new beginning. You need a new start. You sense that he's knocking at the door of your heart today and you would say, Marcus, would you pray for me? I found my way to church today and I need to get right with God. On the count of three, if that's you, lift your hand as quickly as you can. One, two, three, lift it high. Thank you, 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 thank you. God bless you, God bless you, thank you. We're gonna all pray with those who've lifted their hands. If you're watching online, you can just put in the text right there that you've just said yes today, you're talking to me at every campus, lift your hand quickly and we're gonna help you in just a moment. But let's all at every campus, even online, let's all put our hands on our hearts. We're gonna pray this prayer together. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross, for shedding your blood for my sin. I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, give me a brand new beginning. Jesus, I believe that you're God's only son and that he raised you from the dead. And I give you my life today in Jesus name. We all said, amen. Let's